Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red Podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California. And as always, I am joined by... Bob Bazenko in Montrose in Texas. And please uh, share and subscribe and rate and review. Yep, and donate. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. Or check out our new website, our new and improved website, greenredpodcast.org, and hit that support button. Uh, Today we are going to be talking about the climate crisis and the incarceration crisis and where they intersect. Uh, and to talk about that, we are joined by Aline Brown, who is a New York-based reporter focused on environmental justice issues, especially where it intersects with criminalization, incarceration, indigenous affairs, labor, and more. Uh, we've had Aline on before talking about the surveillance of Line 3 water protectors. Her work has been published in The Nation, In These Times, Yes Magazine, The Intercept, and various Twin Cities publications. Welcome to Green and Red, Aline. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. And we're going to be talking about this uh, amazing investigative project that you did uh, in The Intercept called Climate and Punishment, which was a video and a series of articles. Just a couple fact towards to throw out there, the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world despite the national incarceration rate being, the, being at its lowest in 20 years, but about 25% of the world's total population, prison population is in the U.S., which holds about 2.2 million prisoners as of 2019. And like, you know, we could, there's a whole lot of other facts we could go into it, but we're also, you know, um, besieged in this, time, in this time in our in global history, in human history, by the climate crisis. And so we're seeing superstorms and wildfires and drought here in California, for example, and heat waves, et cetera. Um, and so we just want to kind of like talk about where these two crises are intersecting. And so maybe you could start off with just telling us about the project and what your main takeaway from the project was. Yeah, sure. So um, me and my collaborator, Akil Harris at The Intercept, mapped the locations of more than 6,500 jails, prisons, detention centers, including ICE detention centers, uh, against indicators of the climate crisis. So flood risk, heat risk, wildfire risk. Um, and I mean, essentially what we found is that um, there's a lot of facilities facing a lot of risk right now. There's a lot of people experiencing really severe impacts who are incarcerated right now. And all these problems are about to get much worse. And through the series, there's like a number of the, the different articles cover different things. You talk about the heat waves in Texas in particular and superstorms in Florida and uh, wildfires in California. You know, watching the video I was also particularly struck by the family in Texas. I'm from Texas. Bob is in Texas. Um, now I'm forgetting the guy's name, but he talked a lot about being in a health crisis. I, I believe it was like kidney failure and then being subjected to these heat waves and there's not air conditioning. And I'm wondering if you could just actually talk a little bit about what the issue is around that. I know air conditioning, which is a, a key, a critical thing in, in Texas, uh, seems to not be actually uh there's not a lot of air conditioned facilities in the Texas state prison system. 
Yeah, and I think heat is a great place to start. Uh, we were lucky enough um, with our heat data to not only have historical data about what heat looks like in Texas and across the US, but also projections um, toward the end of the century. So we can really see how much worse this problem is gonna get. So nationally, we found that about a third of the facilities in the US, um, this range of detention facilities, are in areas that have historically had more than 50 days annually with a heat index above 90 degrees. So that's enough to make people dealing with a range of health issues sick and probably what most of us would expect to mean, you know, we'd probably turn on air conditioning if we had it, if heat was that high. Um, so, uh, by 2100, you know, now it's about a third of the facilities in the U S at that level, it will go up to three quarters right now. There are no facilities across the U S with more than 50 days annually, um, or that are located in a County with more than 50 days annually over 105 degree heat index, uh, by 2100, there will be 700 facilities at that level, mostly in Texas, Florida, and Louisiana. And so we really honed in on Texas in part because the heat issue is so severe there, but also because there's been a lot of organizing around it. Again, in part in reaction to the fact that a lot of people have died, there have been a number of lawsuits, uh, et cetera. So in Texas, as you mentioned, we uh, focused on the story of this couple, Justin and Casey Phillips. Um, Justin was incarcerated uh, at a state prison in Texas called Cofield, where there was no air conditioning. He has um, a pretty severe kidney condition, which, you know, is the type of thing I, I was told that kidney conditions just across the board really can be exacerbated um, in circumstances of, of severe heat. So he was in this facility, it had no air conditioning, and the heat index was just kind of off the wall. You know, I, I looked at, um, I was able to take a look at some actual on the ground heat index uh, records for that specific facility that were taken out outside of the facility. And at one point while um, Justin was there, the heat index rose over 120 degrees. So, you know, really, really bad heat. We don't know how hot it was inside. For all we know, it was worse. Um, so, you know, he had very little relief from the heat that, you know, this is the thing. If you or I, or someone who is not incarcerated is experiencing bad heat, even if they don't have air conditioning, they can take a walk, they could go to the mall, they could move to a different room. You know, you can kind of make, you could drink a bunch of water, you can make some decisions about how to feel better. But for people who are incarcerated, you're totally at the mercy of the state. So Justin had no ability to make those kinds of decisions. And he said it was just incredibly torturous. It was, you know, really awful. He said that, you know, he knows of suicides that have occurred uh, during these period, these kinds of periods of high heat and that you really just have to um, be as strong as you can, as you're just forced to sit in this hot box for really months on end. Um, so during this time, um, he says his health really deteriorated. And at the same time, you know, there's all these other issues with our system of incarceration. He was unable to, um, you know, he said that at times guard, guards would not escort him to take the medication that he needed. It was just really terrible 
situation. And so in the meantime, his partner, his wife, uh, Casey Phillips, was fighting for him really hard um, outside, just really pushing for the facility to give him the care he needed. Eventually, he was transferred out of this unair-conditioned facility because of her, um, you know, constant advocacy. And she kind of noticed that this was a problem across the system and, and started this organization called Texas Prisons Air Conditioning Advocates, which it has a successor organization called Texas Prisons Community Advocates. And they have been fighting for air conditioning in all Texas prisons for a number of years now. Um, but, you know, ultimately that legislation has failed um, in multiple um, legislative sessions in Texas. Uh, you know, the Republican powers that be, including Governor Greg Abbott, have declined to advance this legislation. And we know that I think as of 2020, about um, only a third of Texas prisons were fully air conditioned. Um, so that's around 70 facilities lacking full air conditioning. 21 facilities had no air conditioning at all. So, you know, you guys know how, how hot it gets in Texas. It's, it's not a pretty situation. Yeah. I used, to go to the movie, I used to go to the movie theater to escape the heat when I lived there in the summers. Right, um, right. See, what struck me, in addition to the heat, is they, they weren't giving this guy water. They weren't giving him adequate water. Mm-hmm. And when you have kidney problems, you know, when, and, you know, I, I have air conditioning, but by September, it's just brutal here. Even with AC, you're just physically broken because every day it's, you know, the 100 or the humidity is 70. And, you know, it, we had, they had a run last year here in Houston where I forget how many days in a row it never went below 80, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did remind me. I studied like the Vietnam War and it reminds me of these like accounts from colonial prisons, you know, like where where the French would put these Vietnamese political prisoners in, you know, in these like like hot boxes. It's it's really, really a, a, a horrific. And I remember a few years ago, you mentioned the legislature. There there was talk of, you know, there, this became an issue. And the general consensus among like people in, in the legislature, the Republicans in the legislature as well, you know, like they don't deserve to have air conditioning, you know, and it's just that the cruelty in, in this state is really, really quite remarkable. Um, you know, you the story that that you presented, I, I'm sorry, I forgot the name already. I mean, the guy says he has, what, a 40% chance of living five more years, but but at least something happened. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that's probably not typical that most people don't have somebody advocating for him and Nothing's really is. Yeah. So, yeah, that's exactly it. And, you know, yeah, this was an exceptional case that he had someone to advocate for him. And also, you know, I would say Texas is making all these moves to create these systems where people with heat sensitive conditions are supposed to be moved to air conditioned beds, but it appears to be really inadequate. You know, they've, they've had these lawsuits and judges have basically affirmed that there are constitutional rights at stake, you know, this thing called cruel and unusual punishment. So the state has been forced to act even outside of the legislature, but no one seems to be able to get a hold of the exact conditions that would like grant you access to an air conditioned bed. Uh, But from what they have shared, there's nothing about kidney conditions. You know, it's a very narrow set of health conditions that they've deemed I guess, worthy of putting people into um, safe beds. Um, But, you know, and I think that's a good lesson in relying on the state to reform the system in a climate safe way. Like it's hard to imagine 
um, infrastructure investments or reforms, targeted reforms like this, that would meet the scale of the challenge, given how politically, um, I guess, unprofitable <laughs> this um, people who are incarcerated seem to be for um, to many legislators. Yeah. One one question I have is, did you just look at state prisons? Did you also look at federal prisons and are federal prisons having similar issues? We looked, yeah, we did look at, uh, we focused especially on state prisons where it came to heat. Um, federal prisons, I regret to say I'm not totally sure if they're universally air conditioned, but we, um, I think, but a lot, but so example in Texas, all the jails are air conditioned. They have a rule on the books that says that they have to be air conditioned. Um, I can't, I, I just don't have as much information about um, how federal prisons are being impacted by heat. So federal prisons have a rule that they have to be air conditioned? I don't know that federal prisons have a rule on the books. Texas local jails do. Like the county jails. Yeah, exactly. Um, so do they abide by that or? Um, as far as I, I'm hearing, I've heard that less problems with it, but you know, I would also say that if, as we're talking about the climate crisis, these things overlap. So if a big storm comes through in California, if there's drought, a lot of times, um, one of the first things that is impacted, especially like as you go to emergency generators, if the power's out, um, the, the air conditioning is not going to be running in many yeah, cases. Sure. Um, so it's, you know, shifting away from Texas a little bit in California, we know that in a number of cases when there's been, yeah, these really severe drought conditions where everybody's blasting their air conditioning and, and you have like rolling blackouts, they often turn to the prisons to be the ones to shift off the grid onto generators. Um, and there have been a number of cases of generator failures um, in California and other places. Um, so it's hard to, it's like you, you can put in the air conditioning, but then you have to maintain it. Then it has to survive um, climate, new climate disasters. Um, it's, you're still relying on the state to prioritize these people when, when the state is in crisis also um, when these disasters strike. Well, you know, on the no. flip side, last year, there was that freak freeze in Texas mm -hmm. and, and prisons were, you know, uh, I, I remember, you know, hearing accounts of that too, where, you know, it was like 30 degrees for three, four days straight in, in these places. Yeah, I actually wrote about that. This was before our big series, but um, someone that I did profile in our piece that focused on ice detention, I'd also spoken to him um, during that cold snap. He was actually in Louisiana and I think his facility, you know, his facility, I think they had heat, but he was in this segregation cell, like in a, you know, a distinct part of the facility and the heat wasn't working properly. So, you know, again, it's like, even if you have this infrastructure installed, um, these people in the segregation space are like shivering with inadequate heat um, when, when a really surprising climate related um, or, you know, surprising, whatever uh, climate related disaster strikes. Shifting, shifting to California, the other, you know, the other big, besides the drought, which we're in right now, we actually had almost a 90 degree day here yesterday, which wow. I kind of had, and that's here in Berkeley, right. You know, less than a mile from the ocean. So I expect it was much hotter the further inland we got. So I was kind of expecting to hear about blackouts and things like that, or even maybe fires coming out of that. But, um, you know, the, on the, in the bigger picture, 
is, according to your report, California has the largest number of facilities at extreme risk for wildfires, 90, I believe. Um, and so there's like a whole bunch of different pieces here. And this is something that we hear a lot about in California. But, you know, one question I have is, you know, do these facilities have evacuation plans? Um, and then when we see these whole towns burn, I'm assuming sooner or later that's going to come to one of these towns where there's a, a prison facility. And so do they have, they evacuate the town, do they evacuate the, the prison facility, for example, or do they yeah, just lock them down further? I mean, that's a great question. That's a key question that um, a lot of people who are, have loved ones who are incarcerated or who are incarcerated themselves advocating for incarcerated people are asking. Um, I mean, what I found in my reporting and what a lot of these advocates can tell you is that um, if you ask California's corrections department, they'll be like, yes, of course we have emergency plans. Yes, yes, yes. We're talking to all the different agencies. We're all in touch. Plan is ready. We, you know, we all decide carefully and together when it's appropriate to evacuate and when it's not. Sometimes shelter in place is necessary. Um, but they will share zero details about how they make these decisions, what policies they have. Um, they're like, cannot share anything. It's a security risk. Sorry, but trust us, we got it. So for people who have survived this COVID crisis, for example, um, with, with links to the mass incarceration system, it's pretty hard for them to say, oh, great, we totally trust that if a big crisis strikes, you're going to protect us. You know, a lot of people were not have not been protected um, as this pandemic has swept through um, jails and prisons and everywhere else. So, you know, that kind of vague promise is not enough for um, people dealing with these crises. And I mean, the other thing that happens, uh, which I heard time and time again, where it came to wildfires and um, hurricanes as well, is, you know, people who are incarcerated as they're hearing that a fire or a storm is coming. Um, I think this was especially with fires. I heard multiple people say, you know, as it's getting super smoky in these cells, they'd ask, you know, what's going to happen if the fire comes? How are we going to be evacuated? And, and the guards would just be like, oh, you're not going anywhere. Like, you guys will stay here, we'll go, you know, and maybe they're just being jerks. But for someone who's trapped in a smoking smoky cell and knows that surra the surrounding community is evacuating, that's a terrifying thing to hear. Um, you know, we had one guy in the California Correctional Center um, in Susanville, California, uh, this facility, there's a number of prisons in the area, um, or a handful anyway, and uh, I don't believe any of them evacuated as the surrounding community was kind of told, basically put on alert to prepare to evacuate. Um, so in uh, this this one prison, the again, we're coming back to this issue of infrastructure failures. Um, the you know, I don't know that the flames ever quite met the prison, but people were stuck in smoky conditions for a couple months. And uh, this one unit at the California Correctional Center had a generator failure. Their generator was not functioning the way it was supposed to. And so people essentially were without lights for a month or two. And in, in one part of that unit, a guy told me that, you know, because the system of locking the cells was electronic, they put padlocks on all the cells. 
And um, so again, he was the one who asked, he's like, okay, so if, if the flames rush toward us the, the way they have in some communities, how are you going to unlock all these doors? You know, how are you going to get us out? And, you know, the guard just told him that, um, you know, there wasn't anything for them. Um, so it's really a terrifying situation. And in that case too, you know, so the generator, I think the generator would power toy, like even the low, this low functioning generator would power the toilet and some kind of inadequate ventilation system. But even that would go out for, you know, a number of hours every week. And so people would not have, again, super smoky, no ventilation, no, can't use their toilet, um, just really horrific conditions. Do they pass out any sort of respirator mask them or anything along those lines? They may have, they may have had masks at CCC, but you know, it wasn't really enough to, <laughs> to, for people a to tiny feel. little band-aid. On the- right, right. Exactly. And you know, the, one of the guys I spoke to said that he'd heard, you know, they, a number of, he heard a number of people basically calling for medical, um, as they, uh, suffered from this heat and kind of respiratory, um, terrible respiratory situation. So, Were were you talking with people still in the system or were you only talking with folks who had been released? It was both. Or family. family. Yeah, it was both. In some cases, there were people who were inside as something happened, but then were released. Um, You know, we were reporting this for more than a year. So it was always helpful when someone was released and suddenly was available to to speak with us. Because, you know, this is the other kind of transparency issue is that um, when these you know, generally it's hard for incarcerated people to have routine access to communications. And, you know, there's a lot of fear about retaliation if they speak out about things. But when there's a climate related disaster like this, um, a lot of times they're put on lockdown for extended periods of time where they don't have access to even call their families. So they're not going to be like, oh yeah, journalist, I think I'm going to use this like 10 minutes that I have. I'm not going to tell my loved one I'm safe. I'm going to call you. Um, so it was very hard to reach people as these crises were happening. And just, I think also affirmed for me, the need for a more systemic look at this stuff the way that we did um, because a lot of times it's these one-off stories and, you know, at the moment something is happening, um, you know, anyone who's dealing with a climate re- related disaster is going to have trouble accessing phones and having time to speak. It's just all the more, more severe uh, for people who are incarcerated. Hey there, this is Scott from the Green and Red podcast with a PSA for our friends at the Certain Days Collective. Certain Days supports political prisoners. They have a calendar they put out every year and are calling for abolition-related art and articles for the next one. You can find out more information at certaindays.org. Thanks. In the video I saw, you you kind of had two vignettes about two women who were involved, one with the, the husband who had the kidney failure and another woman who had both a son and, and husband, I believe, right, in, in prison. And, uh, you know, this is an issue that's very difficult in Texas publicly, you know, you know, I live here and whenever it comes up, you know, there's this general idea that, you know, hey, these people, they're in jail, they did bad things. So right. I mean, beyond family members, like the two that you highlighted, is there any other kind of support out there? Are there any uh, politicians even or 
groups working on this? Are they hoping to go to court? And and even if they do go to court, is Greg Abbott going to give a damn? You know, a, a, mm-hmm. a, so I mean, it's like, is there a larger movement beyond like individual families who take this upon themselves? I would say it's just kind of catching. You know, I think that a lot of organizers have been thinking about this and focusing on this in various ways a long time. But I think in terms of like a widespread grassroots movement, it's it's definitely like at a moment of a lot of growth. So, you know, in Texas, you have Texas prisons community advocates who are, you know, came out of loved ones fighting for their um, family members. Uh, in California, there's this coalition called Curb, which uh, is demanding that 10 prisons close uh, in the next five years, I believe. Uh, I hope I'm getting that right. Um, and part of their demand is that they don't, you know, they don't want repairs. You know, California facilities have this backlog of, of repairs. They don't want more investment in um, the system. They want uh, facilities shut down and, you know, 50,000 people released is their current demand. Um, so, you know, so there's little pockets of people fighting for, for different kinds of things. There's the California coalition, um, in Florida, again, loved ones are also organizing around the heat issue in Washington, DC, Senator Tammy Duckworth has repeatedly, um, introduced legislation that would require the federal Bureau of prisons to provide some information annually about how facilities have been impacted by, Uh, climate disasters and um, what they're doing about it. Uh, And that that legislation also includes some provisions that would encourage the system to consider um, early release or some other kind of uh, community-based, I guess, confinement or, you know, whatever, Um, rather than keeping people in these facilities as disasters strike. yeah. And I mean, in, I would say in Florida too, there's a state Senator there, there's, I mean, there's some Democrats who've been fighting around this for a long time, but there's at least one Republican state Senator who has been pretty vocal around the heat issue. I mean, yeah, he, his, a lot of his work has centered around sentencing reform. So, you know, I think a lot of this ends up coming back to this, issue of, um, or demand for decarceration, um, and the idea that the best, um, and maybe the only like truly viable solution to, to these issues is to get people out of jails and prisons. Thinking about that, about decarceration, is like a, a pathway on this, but the other, the other thing that strikes me is that we're also dealing with a lot of like out of, you know, aging dated sort of infrastructure, like reading the piece on the superstorms, you know, those facilities just weren't built for rising sea levels. And even, you know, away from coastal areas, like places where we're seeing increasing flooding for various other environmental reasons. Uh, same, same with the wildfire, you know, prisons at risk next to wildfire areas. And so is there also, um, like, sooner or later, those prisons are going to like, like, particularly in like places, coastal areas like Florida and Louisiana, and, you know, that's the one of the most famous pictures I think of in my head is from Hurricane Katrina, where the prisoners are just like kind of sitting out on a roadside cuff because, you know, shackled because the waters from Katrina rose so quickly. And I don't think this is a, a viable solution. I'm much more into the decarceration. But are, are also some of these politicians talking about, oh, we just need to build more prisons further inland and just like retire yeah. these other ones. 
Yeah. So that's um, actually what just happened in Florida is that, um, you know, there there was legislation introduced to um, centered around sentencing reform, et cetera. But I don't believe any of that passed. I think their legislative session is done. And I apologize if I'm getting this wrong. But um, my understanding is that that legislation did not pass. And what what did get approval was a big budget to build at, at least one new prison. And I think a, a medical facility for people who are incarcerated um, because a lot of the population is aging. Um, so yeah, I mean, in Florida, you see some of the Republican leadership kind of advocating for air conditioned kind of storm safe facilities, um, like new green prisons, essentially, rather than, uh, rather than letting people out. And I mean, even that, I don't think that there's like, I think they approved to build one prison. Uh, there's way more than one prison that is in a deteriorated condition in Florida. Um, but I think that's a key um, tension. And again, you know, I think we're kind of at a crossroads where either because of, of the constitution, uh, they're, they're going to have to do something about these facilities. And it's either investing an incredible amount of money in incarceration, which probably won't be quite enough to actually protect people from climate related issues. Um, and also will be investing in a system that is not really working. It's not really doing what it's supposed to do in terms of keeping people safe. Um, or, you know, turning toward decarceration. I'll also say that our flooding data, I think, really was what drove this point home for me. Uh, you know, we identified more than 600 facilities across the U.S. with um, a lot of flood risk, uh, but a lot of them were not, you know, they were located not on the coast necessarily. A lot of them were kind of in interior locations, near rivers, et cetera, um, that flood for all kinds of reasons. And we found that a lot of the places that have flooded historically are not actually based, they're not in a location that necessarily has fl high flood risk according to our data. But if your facility is falling apart, if your roof is leaky, if your sewage system is a mess, it doesn't really matter how high on a hill you are, if a big storm, com storm comes, you're gonna be in bad shape. Um, a lot of these facilities were built during the prison boom in the eighties. And I think into the nineties, um, you know, the dr a drug war boom. Dr exactly. Drug war boom. That's what it is. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, you know, all these facilities that were built because of the war on drugs are now, um, aging and falling apart right as the climate crisis is really, um, showing itself. The, the other thing that kind of comes to mind right now is I've, I have sometimes worked or supported a group called uh, In Toxic Prisons, which mm -hmm. is where they are, uh, where in states like Kentucky and West Virginia, they want to build prisons on top of like former surface mine sites, like mountaintop removal sites. And those, and those folks are like, have been resisting that for quite, quite some time. And I'm wondering if you came across anything around that sort of construction of new prisons on these toxic sites, because not only is it just problematic because they're basically have stripped the earth of all of its natural resources. Now they're building prisons on it, but they're also like, you know, there's poison that's poisonous, toxic right. to be there. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think this is a real problem. I mean, I didn't, in my reporting, I didn't ac come across specific 
like prisons that are, I know that are about to be built that are on a toxic site. Although I'm, I'd be surprised if there aren't any, um, you know, one thing that we, I did just do a story about a facility that was, um, that is next door to a, uh, kind of tire recycling facility, like basically a dump that had been abandoned and had giant piles of tires everywhere. In addition to these like shredded tire bits that had been, you know, piled up and um, yeah, caught on fire. And this fire um, just burned and burned for about 11 days. People started having like noticing this fire and the, the smoky impacts Um I think four days before they finally evacuated the, the facility. So um, that was in Louisiana. Um, so I think that, that, you know, all these issues overlap. Um, yeah. It, uh, they, you know, they end up transferred to some like old facility that isn't in use during the evacuation. It's just, even these evacuations are not great. And the other thing that I would say I don't know, this isn't exactly answering your question, but um, if you're thinking of like the prison itself as like a toxic site, which one might, um, in Louisiana, there were some, um, there have been some uh, prison reform or reforms around um, like criminal legal system reforms that have left fewer people, that have meant fewer people who are incarcerated. So, um, you know, around when Trump was elected, a lot of local governments were finding that they didn't have as many people coming into their jails and prisons, and this meant a budget hit for them. Um, so to fill that space, they ended up contracting with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, um, and and provi providing ICE detention. So suddenly there were all these facilities in Louisiana providing ICE detention. And um, again, this was kind of like an economic uh, response from these local governments. Um, and it meant a lot of people ending up in facilities in a state that is just like uniquely vulnerable to the climate crisis and um, also actually has a lot of issues with, with pollution and toxics. So that we ended up... Um, in my latest piece, we profiled this guy, Angel Argita Anariba, who was just released from ICE detention um, this week. We're really excited to hear that he's with his family now. Uh, he had been in That's ICE great. Yeah, yeah, really wonderful. He had been in ICE detention for seven years, um, which is really long for ICE detention, and ended up in these facilities in Louisiana and, um, yeah, experienced some extremely dire circumstances when Hurricane Laura hit in 2020. And then you know, there were actually two other subsequent storms that same fall um, that brought really bad conditions. Um, Angel came to the U.S. in 1998 in response to Hurricane Mitch. You know, his community was totally destroyed. And so he, he came to the U.S. Um, he's what we now might call a climate migrant. Wasn't really as much of a thing then. Um, and so I think his story really shows how, uh, you know, climate crisis also means you know, estimates of hundreds of thousands of, of climate migrants just between uh, now and 2050, those people, our asylum system does not account for those people. They end up um, living in precarious situations in the U.S. without um, government approval to be here. And a lot of people end up 
caught in ice detention where they are again vulnerable, uniquely vulnerable to climate disasters. I remember not that long ago in, in Arizona, Joe Arpaio was using heat, you know, as, as an actual weapon against everybody. I mean, it's, you know, kind of, I guess what they're saying is there's a particular inertia in getting air conditioning, but how much of this is just, you know, kind of part of the, like in Texas, it's just a, a regime of cruelty with women, with LGBT, I mean, you name it, schools, teachers, and I mean, you know, prisoners don't have a, a significant lobby. So how much mm-hmm. of it is just like, just a, a regime of cruelty. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like all these things. So, you know, so as I, as after reporting this, I heard a lot of feedback and there's certainly an element who, of people who say, you know, well, you did the crime, you do the time, yeah. like, sorry, prison's not supposed to be fun. Um, this is what you get. Um, there's also people who will say, well, um, yeah, okay, so that seems bad, but what about nursing homes? What about all these other things that we're not ready, that are not ready as the climate crisis comes? So you can see how these people who are already kind of like sacrifice people that were kind of shoving into these facilities um, because of, uh, I guess, poverty and and racism and long state neglect um, that just, intensifies um, when, again, the state is facing this crisis where all kinds of things are unprepared. How, if they're not justifying protecting these people now, will they really do that as we're, as this crisis deepens? Um, not so sure. <laughs> well, there's, a, there's actually probably a lot of Joe Arpaios in, in, in these states, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because he became the face of it, and a lot of people were outraged. But that's just kind of, in a lot of ways, business. If you're in Texas and you mm-hmm. follow this even minimally, and that's I do it a little bit, and it's it's terrifying. So wow, um, right? I don't. Yeah, you're doing great work. I it's uh, incredibly illuminating, and it's a tough topic to take on. I, my entire life, whenever I've talked to people who do prisoner work, it's you know like they're they're doing the most difficult stuff because that's a really hard sell, you know because yeah. Yeah, I mean, I thought covering the climate crisis was depressing, combine that with mass incarceration, and then combine that with like ice detention. It's just really the least cheerful. Reporting. You need to start studying unicorns and rainbows, you know. Start <laughs> yeah, with, maybe you know, so, uh, maybe so. Uh, Although, you know, like this kind of work. Ice cream cones and, you know. Right, right. You know, like, I mean, this this week, this guy on hell getting out of ice detention. Yeah. I mean, he's still, he's out on bond. He's still fighting his asylum case. There are, you know, the stakes are really high for every individual. And so there's something gratifying about fighting in a way that can have such immediate and significant impact on um, individuals' lives. I'm getting to the the end of my questions. I have one more. I don't know if, Bob, you have anything else. My my only other question was... um, you know, what is happening at the highest federal level is the Biden administration. Is there any sort of action or even rhetoric around this from the Biden administration? So I haven't heard much like vocal, you know, like much like talking about it. But um, I will say that all the federal agencies were required to put together these climate action plans. So you see climate action plans for um, the, now I'm blanking, what is 
there's the Justice Department, which covers the Bureau of Prisons, um, Department of Homeland Security, which covers ICE. Um, they both have climate action plans, and they both say that they're assessing their facilities for climate risks. Um, I think the Justice Department has already done some of that. Of course, they declined to share any of their analysis so far with me. Um, and, you know, there's this idea of these facilities getting they're going to prepare these facilities for the climate crisis so you know investing um more money in the system and uh building greener prisons i guess is what i'm getting out of those reports i would love to talk one-on-one -on -one with some of the the folks in these uh agencies no one's no one's raised their hand to speak with me yet or, or responded to um requests for comment or and interviews in a very robust way but yeah i mean dhs is also expecting According to their climate plan, um, you know, a massive increase in migration is one of their kind of top five things that they're looking for, uh, or th that they're looking toward. And um, yeah, so that you know, they didn't go into a lot of detail about what they're going to do about it, but there was some language indicating uh, hardening the border and kind of putting more resources toward the border. That's, that's their response is to just tighten up security at the border to keep people out, right? Mm -hmm. um, folks, you've been listening to Aline Brown. We've been talking about her series, Climate and Punishment. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Um, very important work. Thank you for joining us today, Aline. Yeah, thank uh, you so pleasure. much for having me. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, it was great. It's great having you back. We'd love to have you again in the future with whatever next story you come out with. Um, and folks, you've been listening to the Green and Red podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can hit subscribe on YouTube, which has been growing significantly lately, uh, as, as has our audio podcasts listens. Um, and then if you want to make a donation, you can go to Patreon, patreon.com backslash Green Red Podcast, or go to our website, greenredpodcast.org, and hit that support button. Um, everyone else out there, make trouble, misbehave. And we'll talk to you again soon. Nick, knack, patty whack. Say you'll hear your bones crack when they bend you back to Bible black. Then you'll find your love. Some folks have to die too hard. Some folks have to cry too hard. Take one look at the prison yard, put by prison grove.